This is Backstory. I'm Peter Ronoff. Well, I believe in God. I am Christian. I am a person of faith. I am a Christian. These days, American presidential candidates are practically required to proclaim their religious faith. But for much of American history, presidents were reluctant to speak openly about their faith. In fact, two of the country's most admired presidents, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, had no formal religious affiliation at all. But in some elections, the faith of a presidential candidate takes center stage. In 1928, the country's first Catholic presidential candidate lost in a landslide. He's got a campaign stop in Oklahoma City, and they burn crosses where his train is coming through. A history of faith in the presidency coming up on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. Hey, Brian. And Peter Onus with us. Hey there, Brian. In New York City in 1832, a devastating cholera epidemic swept across the city. When it first arrives in New York, there are about a thousand deaths in the first two weeks. This is Auburn University historian Adam Jortner. Over 2,000 people die in New York City uh, before the epidemic is finished. It sort of rips through New York City and onto Philadelphia and St. Louis and so forth. Cholera is caused by poor sanitation and food or water is contaminated by human waste. But in the 1830s, people didn't know that. They just saw their fellow Americans collapsing around them, losing control of their bowels, their skin turning blue from dehydration. Many died within hours. So it's not surprising that some Americans turned to a higher power. There is a church in New York City, the Dutch Reformed Church, and they draft a resolution asking the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, to declare a day of prayer and fasting, uh, to ask God to remove this, this terrible plague, this terrible pestilence he has sent on the nation. Now, both George Washington and James Madison had earlier proclaimed days of fasting and prayer, so requesting a national prayer day wouldn't have seemed inappropriate. But to the church's surprise, Jackson says no. Jackson writes, I couldn't do this without transcending those limits which are prescribed by the Constitution for the president, and without feeling that I might in some degree disturb the security which religion now enjoys in this country in its complete separation from the political concerns of the general government. That should have been the end of it, but it wasn't. Jackson's refusal to declare a National Prayer Day sparked a political brawl. Senator Henry Clay, a rival of Jackson's who planned to run for president that year, quickly put forth his own Senate resolution for a day of fasting to combat cholera. Henry Clay is well known as a 
card-playing gambler. He's a drinker. Uh, so he's not exactly the, the kind of person these sort of religious types are going to vote for. So he stands up and says, I might be a drinker and a gambler, but I think the state should recognize God and ask God for his protection. It's a strange speech because he actually he actually says in the Senate, I am a member of no religious sect. I regret that I am not. I wish that I was. And then he asks for this uh, resolution. As Clay's resolution sailed through the Senate and headed to the House, President Jackson remained silent. But his allies in Congress and the press really went after Clay. One of Jackson's supporters accuses Clay of prostituting our holy religion. Uh, and he, they said that this, uh, this fast by authority was a mere stepping stone to more odious forms of political control. That's great. Fast by authority. Yeah. I mean, there's a real fear, and the newspapers really capture it, that if you get a politician talking about when to pray and what to pray for, that that's tyranny. So why all this heated rhetoric for an issue that had been relatively uncontroversial? Jortner says in Clay's case, he simply was playing politics. He was courting religious voters for his presidential campaign. But what about Andrew Jackson? Jortner says Jackson's motivations were more complicated. He's a religious guy, but you can't say that just because someone is religious uh, that they'll think it's okay for uh, the state to invoke God or for you know the state to sponsor uh, Prayer, days of prayer. Or to go even uh, farther, just because somebody's religious and happens to be president of the United States does not mean that they believe that that power, the political power, should be used to uh, advance the religious. And I think it, they actually believe exactly the opposite, that uh, by keeping the state out of religion completely, that was the best way to assure that true religion uh, would flourish. So Jackson was acting on principle, not petty politics, right? Again, not exactly. Jortner points out that the very churches that were calling for a day of prayer were among Jackson's most vocal enemies. Jackson is, in 1832, trying to remove the Cherokee Indians uh, from Georgia, from Alabama. And who wants to stop him? Uh, it's evangelical, uh, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, uh, mostly from the North. Uh, and these guys had been telling Jackson, hey, you, you can't do this. Don't remove them. And Jackson, just like Clay, had his eye on the November election, which he won easily, by the way. Rejecting the prayer resolution played to his political base. Uh, I think he knew perfectly well that his supporters were in the South, and he knows they want their Christianity uh, without uh, the hands of the government touching it. Uh, and I think he did this, uh, in part at least, to you know, shore up his support in the Southern states. In other words, when it comes to the faith of American presidents, it's often hard to untangle religion from the unholy business of politics. So today on the show, we're taking a look at the religious beliefs of the nation's chief executives and how those beliefs have shaped the nation's politics. We'll look at how Thomas Jefferson won the support of Baptists and other evangelical Christians despite his unorthodox religious views. 
We'll also hear how presidential candidate Al Smith encountered a tidal wave of anti-Catholic prejudice in 1928. And we'll look at how the evangelical preacher Billy Graham became the spiritual advisor to a dozen American presidents. But first, Peter, I have a little tape I want to play for you. The first voice is Reverend Franklin Graham on CNN earlier this year. And he's followed by a panel on Fox News from 2015. Give a listen. Uh, you talk about us being a secular government, a secular society. That, that, that's only taken place in the last uh, few years. Uh, our nation was founded on biblical principles. Thomas our- Jefferson was an atheist, but like somehow recently in the last in the 20th century, everybody thinks that like everything's a Christian, whatever. It, it never was. So, Peter, I need a little bit of help here. Uh, we seem to be in fundamental disagreement about the fundamental origins of, the, of faith in the nation. Uh, on one hand, you hear these guys were all enlightenment figures. And on the other hand, we hear that the nation was founded on Christianity. How would we hold both those ideas in our head at the same time? Well, they're both true. And we have a problem separating the two. The great culture wars of the recent period have pivoted on a notion that the real America is Christian or the real idea is enlightened and devoted to science and progress and modernity. And uh, that's a reflection of our times, not of the times of the revolutionaries and the founders. In a descriptive sense, most Americans are Christian in this period. There's no question about it. The religious language is pervasive. It's part of the common culture. There's no question about it. But there's no necessary opposition. Just as there is no necessary opposition between faith and science in this period, in fact, a nice way to think about it is natural philosophy or natural religion which is the position that roughly describes what George Washington embraces and Thomas Jefferson and many of the founders. We often call these people deists because they don't obsess about doctrinal distinctions. They instead look at the big picture as the Enlightenment has taught them to do, and they see the world around a guiding idea that there was a purpose to the American Revolution and to American nationhood, a providential purpose. That religious idea, that spiritual idea, it doesn't entail specific doctrinal commitments. You could be a Quaker, you could be a Baptist. You could even uh, take the Bible and cut out the parts you don't like, like Thomas Jefferson did, right? Well, many Christians today would say that he's gutting it of its essential Christian character. I would say that he's trying to isolate those elements that he believes all good, faithful, patriotic Americans could accept. Uh, what he's str- taken out of the Bible uh, are what we might call the ethical teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't emphasize miracles because, you know, if the republic is going to succeed, it's not because God is regularly intervening. He believed that the republic needed a foundation in an ethical system and in a religion of the people. That makes Jefferson as a president, Washington as a president, very much uh, speaking to a popular religious understanding They're not anti-religious. We think enlightenment, anti-religion, secular humanism, uh, that is, there's no soul, there's no commitment, but there is. Well, okay, okay. This is very helpful because what you're suggesting is that the presidents following the founding fathers honor religion, but they are not advertising they belong to a certain denomination or sect or whatever, right? I think that's right. So when does this idea shift 
I mean, when does it become not okay to have this kind of expurgated Bible and a kind of uh, a, a, a miracle-less <laughs> Christianity? The big tent that Jefferson and other advocates of civil religion propose allows lots of different variations to flourish, different ways of worship, and different ideas about God and God's purposes on earth. And uh, toleration is double-edged then. It both encourages a broad consensus, you might say a broad ethical, even spiritual consensus, but it also encourages diversity, and that diversity can take on sharp edges. Yeah, I think it's even more ironic than that, Ed, and I'll ask you, Uh, didn't some of those evangelical Christians go on to question and ultimately disparage that um, ethical humanism, that more civic religion, Mm -hmm. that deism? Yeah, but then they picked up other great themes of the founding. So this evangelical language, Brian— fueled both the anti-slavery and the pro-slavery ranks of antebellum America. And the way this would look is that the people who were anti-slavery say, what could be more anti-Christian than not honoring other people as you yourself would be honored? And the people who want to defend slavery say, show me in the Bible where it says slavery is wrong. So people lay claim to the same Bible that Jefferson had cut up. Uh, So it's interesting how quickly these cycles can come and go. And I think it goes back to what Peter said. We created such a big tent at the founding of the nation that faith in the presidency and everything else in American history can take all kinds of shapes and forms. But Ed, I'm going to press you on the president and faith. I know you've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about Lincoln and faith. How does he deal with the great conflict that you describe? Well, he avoids it for a long time. Uh, uh, He's pretty widely known uh, as not being an orthodox churchman. I mean, he he doesn't uh, belong to any denomination. He's not been a famous churchgoer. Uh, But he does meet with ministers uh, during the war, Um, and you can certainly trace over the course of the Civil War an increasing reliance on what he calls providence and then does call God. He makes the same move that Thomas Jefferson did. (laughs) He says, I'm not going to talk about specific religious faith, but I am going to invoke the hand Mm -hmm. of God by saying this war is so mystifying that it must have been God's will that both sides sacrifice enough blood to atone for the blood shed in slavery. Earlier, we heard from Auburn University historian Adam Jortner. A portion of that interview appeared on our episode, Wall of Separation, Church and State in America. Hi, Backstory listeners. We have an episode we're working on that you can help us shape. With the presidential debates on the horizon, I bet you've been thinking about some great debate moments in American history. Like Lloyd Benson's 1988 withering put-down of Dan Quayle in the vice presidential debate. 
Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. Or Ronald Reagan's joke dismissing concerns about his advanced age compared to his rival, Walter Mondale. That was in 1984. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. (laughs) And of course, debate history is full of infamous gaffes. Uh, I mean gaffes. I would would do away with the education, uh, the uh, (laughs) commerce, and let's see, I can't. Sorry. (laughs) Oops. I went to a number of women's groups and said, can you help us find folks? And they brought us whole binders full of uh, of women. Admiral Stockdale, your opening statement, please, sir. Who am I? Why am I here? (laughs) We'd love for you to send us your favorite debate moment from presidential history. You can record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to backstory at virginia.edu. Or leave a comment on backstoryradio.org, and we'll reach out to you. We're looking forward to hearing them. We'll turn now to one of the first times that religion burst out into the open in a presidential election, when Thomas Jefferson was running for president in 1800. Let's set the stage by rewinding a bit to the American Revolution of the 1770s. During this period, Americans didn't just repudiate the authority of the king. They were being encouraged to question other kinds of authority as well, including that of established churches. And that skepticism towards organized religion continued after the revolution. Take Thomas Paine, for instance. He rose to fame with his pamphlet Common Sense, in which he urged the American colonies to fight for independence and a democratic government. But Paine didn't stop there. He followed up Common Sense with a number of writings, including The Age of Reason. This is historian Amanda Porterfield. He turned his mind to the authoritarianism and tyrannical terrors of biblical authority and essentially called for a revolution and overthrowing of biblical authority as Mm -hmm. a natural sequel to overthrowing British monarchy. Paine likely thought this appeal would be well-received. After all, as we mentioned earlier, American leaders such as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were deists, although they were discreet about it. But Paine in some ways misjudged his audience. By the time his pamphlet, The Age of Reason, was published in 1794, nearly 20 years after Common Sense, America was becoming a far more religious country in an era now known as the Second Great Awakening. Where does this leave a man like Thomas Jefferson? During the Revolution, his deism had not been controversial. But when he ran for president in 1800, it was clear he would have to adjust to the changing religious climate. His political enemies, chiefly John Adams and the Federalists, slammed him as a French atheist philosopher. And they had the backing of the established New England churches and their followers. Amanda Porterfield says for these religious voters, Jefferson's deism was downright dangerous. You were worried about the violence and disorder and chaos that would erupt when someone who lacked the kind of religious virtue 
that you mm-hmm. would associate mm-hmm. with a more orthodox Christian were in power. So the fact that he uh, was rumored to be an atheist, and probably was, would be a sign, a very clear and dangerous sign of his inability to govern in a Republican way. He would just unleash demonic forces. But Jefferson had his own religious base in the election of 1800. Baptists and other beleaguered evangelicals, groups that were religious minorities at the time, liked Jefferson's appeal to the common man. They also appreciated his defense of the separation of church and state, which had allowed these churches to flourish. So even though he is a deist, possibly an atheist, and Baptists who are firmly uh, believing in God and divine providence and miracles mm-hmm. and the, the authority of the Bible, they are able to make common cause, and he's able to uh, enlist Baptists and increasing numbers of evangelicals who themselves increase in number because of the power of the Jefferson political party. So Jefferson has friends who are Christians and he has enemies who are Christians in a way. That's the setup that you describe. And uh, Jefferson's evangelical followers are excited about him because he's associated with separation of church and state. Yes, and I think just to add to this, Jefferson appeals to uh, the common man, if you will, has a political relationship with the Baptists who represent working, laboring people. But in terms of his own lifestyle, uh, you know, he's certainly among the elites and his education. So there, and this was seen by those who opposed Jefferson, um, like Washington and Hamilton, as the epitome of hypocrisy, that Jefferson would have Uh a French wardrobe and uh, yet appear at his, you know, inauguration uh, party dressed as a country rube. And I Mm -hmm. think even though Jefferson was a member of that elite, I think genuinely he did ascribe to this more democratic view of how America should be. And that's the kind of sacred cause of liberty that Uh, he has in common with the evangelicals, even though doctrinally, if you get them talking about theology and who they really think God is, or if there is a God, uh, they're going to be on very different footing. So liberation from the state actually empowers religious people, and uh, there's a transformation that's taking place in American life. Uh, Describe what it's like beginning in 1801 when Jefferson's inaugurated, how religion will continue to operate in American politics in subsequent decades. One of the things that religion is doing after 1801 is as Americans move west, it is the basis of community formation, uh, town formation. In many cases, the law that exists in some parts of the west are essentially what uh, happens in the discipline of churches. So Mm -hmm. the the moral order, if you will, of the frontier is coming primarily in terms of the power that religious communities are able to exert in their locales, not from the government's state or territorial or much less federal in an era when the strongest federal agency is the post office. So it's a combination of Jeffersonian emphasis on limited government and individual liberty 
and the cultural power of the churches to hold the country together that uh, creates a new conception of what America is in the early 19th century. That is so true. And this broad notion that our leaders should share our faith uh, prevails in America. Well, and I think also um, the way in which religion and politics are now uh, sloshing into one another uh, in a way that uh, sets the tone uh, for American religious and political life uh, ever since that time. Amanda, you're the best student we have of the religious dimension of the election of 1800. Well, every election since then has had a kind of religious dimension to it, as we are well aware. Where are we today? And and given your understanding of where we came from, uh, how how does our world resemble the world that emerged in the 19th century? The most obvious uh, connection is religion is a sine qua non. You have to be religious to run for president of the United States. And mm-hmm. um, just in the same way that Jefferson had to really backtrack from any kind of overt expression of his deism, even his possible atheism, mm-hmm. and expressed himself more as more friendly to religion and mm-hmm. more moderately re- religious. I think that today religion is just part of the landscape, but you have the same suspiciousness of the other side's religion. And it's mm-hmm. really a way of linking religion and politics here. So uh, Hillary Clinton, a lifelong Methodist, you know, people who don't like her don't see her as genuinely religious. Donald Trump, you know, people who oppose him don't see his religion as authentic. Amanda, I hate to put these two names together, but would you say that in this election that Donald Trump is playing the role of Thomas Jefferson? Donald Trump is using the Jeffersonian playbook, challenging authority. You know, all those uh, people in power, we've Mm -hmm. got to just make a deal with the common man. What's different is that Trump is also representing himself as the strong man. And Jefferson Mm -hmm. never represented himself that way. Uh, And he certainly didn't have Mm -hmm. the love of of the limelight that Trump does. I mean, Jefferson hardly ever spoke in in public. And when he did, he spoke very softly and few people could hear him. So there's nothing like the, the persona. But Trump is using the Jeffersonian playbook, the anti-authoritarian, let's have a revolution playbook. Amanda Porterfield is a professor of religion at Florida State University and author of Conceived in Doubt, Religion and Politics in the New American Nation. In 1960, Americans elected the nation's first Catholic president. But John F. Kennedy was not the first Catholic to run for the White House. That distinction belongs to Alfred E. Smith, the Democratic Party's presidential candidate in 1928. Unlike Kennedy, Smith didn't go to Harvard. He didn't even go to high school. He dropped out of school to help support his family, working at the Fulton Fish Market in Brooklyn. While Al Smith lacked formal education, he was a gifted politician. 
Historian and Smith biographer Robert Slayton recounts a famous story from Smith's time in the New York State Legislature, where he served from 1904 to 1915. And he's in the middle of a debate, and suddenly another legislator comes in and interrupts. He says, boys, boys, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Cornell just won the big boat race. <laughs> and, and the legislator on the other side of the aisle says, well, it doesn't mean anything to me. I'm, a, um, I'm an NYU man. And another one says, well, I'm U of Michigan. And condescendingly, they say, wow, we hope we're not um, uh, putting you down or anything, Al. And he says, no problem. I'm an FFM man myself. And I say... What's that? FFM? What school, what's that? What school is that? Fulton Fish Market. Now can we get on with the debate? <laughs> so he's kind of, kind of a salty guy and uh, sort of unabashed working class background then? Exactly. And so, so how did he work his way up from that background into politics? He started literally running errands for Tammany Hall, the Democratic Party machine in Manhattan, and he stays up every night reading every bill. He's the only guy who actually reads every bill to come before them, and he becomes a master of the legislature as a result of that, totally self-taught. The Democratic Party nominated Al Smith for president in 1928. He seemed like a logical choice to face then-Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover. Smith was a popular and highly effective governor of New York, serving four terms. Like many of his urban constituents, Smith was a practicing Catholic. His religious identity was never an issue when he ran for office in New York. But Slayton says once he began campaigning for president, it soon became apparent that his Catholicism did matter to voters outside of New York, especially to one group on the rise in the 1920s. There are three Ku Klux Klans. The, the first is during Reconstruction after 1865. The second is the 1920s. And the third is 1950s and 60s to oppose the civil rights movement. The one in the 1920s is far and away the largest. Right. There are millions and millions of American members. The state in the 1920s with the largest Klan population is Indiana. So th this is really a national movement. The, the reason they react to Catholics is because that is the great threat. Immigrants are pouring in. And the nativists are going, my God, we are being flooded. They are terrified not of blacks. Blacks are dealt with by the horrendous Jim Crow laws. Um, immigrants are not being stopped. We damn well better stop them. And hooded sheets are the way to do it. And a lot of those immigrants are Catholic. Uh, just they, are, they are definitely, there are a lot more Catholics than Jews, so um, they are at the top of the list. And you've got the perfect demon. He's called the Pope. And Al Smith then comes to embody this whole constellation of things that the old America, as they would have thought themselves, the real America, is frightened of. Exactly. It was his faith. It was the fact that he was from the biggest and darkest city in the United States. He had a thick accent. Um, we're talking to you on what Al Smith referred to as the radio. That was how he pronounced it. Um, and that when he was campaigning and he'd say, it's a pleasure to talk to you here on the radio. That didn't go over in Nebraska. Um, so there were just a whole bunch of ways he personified a whole change going on in America. So with all this new American identity, what kind of response does he get? Horrible. Absolutely horrible. 
Um, in Daytona Beach, Florida, the school board had every child bring home a letter from the school. And you know how impressive that is to the parents. Oh, my yeah. God, it's a letter from the school. And it says, if Al Smith is elected president, you will not be able to have or read a Bible. Um, <laughs> they didn't realize that Catholics also read the Bible? Different Bible. Oh, big wars over that. Different Bible <laughs> altogether. That's not the Protestant Bible. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, you so. mean the Bible. <laughs> Their Bible. You will not be allowed to have a Protestant Bible. Um, Smith was actually quite naive. For all of his brilliance, his background was extremely limited. He doesn't get much out of, forget New York, just lower Manhattan part of right. New York. Um, his impression, I tried to track down his impression of America. He was devoted to the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. He thought everybody lived by those principles. And when he finds out otherwise, he's very disillusioned. He, he becomes very, very bitter that America is not what he thought it was. Um, the episode, I think, that is a real turning point comes when he's got a campaign stop in Oklahoma City. And he crosses the Oklahoma line, co coming from the state just north of it, and they burn crosses is, is, where his train is coming through. Wow. And, and he tries to joke it off at first, but he gets into Oklahoma City and he's mad. He's actually, at this point, he said, this is wrong. And he drops a speech and he gives a different speech and he says, basically, you can't do this. You just can't do this. You want to oppose me. You want to disagree with my positions. That's fine. But you can't just dismiss me because of my religion. That's just not the American way. I will stand on my record. And you want to not agree with that? That's fine. But you can't just dismiss me or any other person just because of who they are. And that's still the speech that speaks to America today. Did people rise to his defense? No. No, he loses terribly. He loses huh. terribly, which is, uh, it's not quite a landslide on the level of the 1936 election, but he loses badly to Herbert Hoover, absolutely. And what is particularly bitter for Smith is that his beloved New York State actually votes for Hoover. That, that kills him. So what's the moral of this story, do you think? What, what, what should we take away from the experience of the rise and near triumph of Al Smith? That America is a great country, but it doesn't get that way quickly or easily. In the long run, though, the new America of any period cannot be denied. It just can't be. It's just the, a reality. The numbers are there, and we have a democracy, and sooner or later, it's going to out. It seems to be a long time then before the Democrats put forward another Catholic in 1960 with John Kennedy. What sort of resonances do you see between the 1928 experience and the 1960 experience? 1960 was very different, in part because of Al Smith, in part because of other factors. A couple of things about John Kennedy. First of all, he had one bona fide that Smith never did, and that was John Kennedy was a real war hero. We right. had all, I remember when he ran, we all read about PT-109. He remember really that great was, movie. <laughs> great movie. He really was a legitimate war hero. Yeah. Secondly... Because of Smith, he knew it, John Kennedy knew it could be a problem. And he 
unlike Smith, he was not going to ignore this. There's the famous meeting with the Baptist where he says, I know you have qualms about me being a Catholic. I want to assure you it has nothing to, my personal religion has nothing to do with my policies. It has nothing to do with how I plan to be president of the United States. So he, he, he expected it, he knew about it, and he diffused it as best he could beforehand. Smith never did anything like that because he didn't expect it to be a problem. So did the United States sort of need an Al Smith somebody to, to break the glass uh, so that somebody else could follow and succeed? Smith broke the glass for a lot of things, not just Catholics. The whole notion of ethnics and city people being accepted as Americans, which even now is not totally the case. But Smith, in a way, he's the pioneer for what we're facing now. He's saying, yes, all these new voters are Americans. Al Smith nominated for president, darling. Al Smith nominated for president, darling. Al Smith nominated for president. My vote to him, mama going to present, darling. Robert Slayton is a historian at Chapman University and the author of Empire Statesman, The Rise and Redemption of Al Smith. Al Smith is a mighty fine man, darling. Al Smith is a mighty fine man, darling. Al Smith is a mighty fine man. He wants to be president of our land, darling. Before we move on with today's topic, we wanted to open up the Backstory Mailbag. We've been getting lots of great comments from our recent episodes. A couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on the history of the American work ethic. Historian Margaret O'Mara was on the program comparing the work ethic encouraged at Silicon Valley tech campuses like Google to the 19th century company town of Pullman, Illinois. Several of you pointed out that we didn't include the full story of Pullman, which ended in a violent labor strike, the National Guard intervening, and congressional hearings. Listener Max Rosenblum tweeted to us that while we ran that episode for Labor Day, we never noted that the national holiday grew out of the labor turmoil in Pullman in the 1890s. And listener Daniel Fuller wrote to us saying, not mentioning the outcome and comparing it to the current Google campus, you left an impression of a successful experiment. We don't even know how the Google plan will work out eventually, but other 19th and 20th century industrial utopian experiences based on the ideals of the ruling class didn't work out well either. Fortunately, we're working on a history of utopias later this fall and plan to explore the Pullman experiment more thoroughly. That recent episode of the American Work Ethic also got listener Bob Lever from North Dakota thinking. He reached out with this question. I'm 40 years old, and among my generation, I believe there's a myth regarding retirement. My generation seems to feel that throughout time, people have been retiring as early as they possibly can. I've been researching my family tree, and I found that simply isn't true. Most of my ancestors worked basically until they couldn't work any longer. There was no real retirement to speak of. When did retirement as we know it today begin to be the norm? Well, Bob's got a great question, but it doesn't really apply until the modern period, and I mean by that the late 19th century. In a traditional agrarian household economy, uh, there's no such thing as retirement. Your productivity would certainly go down and down until you're in a rocking chair, but 
there's no such thing as retirement. Yeah, the first, what we might think of as retirement, known as pensions, were offered to veterans of the American Revolution and the American Civil War. Matter of fact, it would have been a huge government expenditure by the late 19th century, but this is a far cry from having it apply to everybody. That's right, and and a lot of those veterans were disabled. Uh, They were not able-bodied workers. We don't really get retirement benefits for able-bodied workers uh, until companies begin to provide them a little bit in the early 20th century. And then in 1935, the Social Security Act provides them to manufacturing industrial workers. That hardly solved the problem for millions of Americans because it only applied to industrialized work. So it really wasn't until after World War II that the majority of Americans could even imagine retiring. Thanks for your input on all of our shows. Don't be shy about letting us know what's on your mind. Head to BackstoryRadio.org. In 2010, President Obama completed what has become a rite of passage for Commanders-in-Chief. He arranged a meeting with the Reverend Billy Graham. Here's Obama recalling the visit to Graham's North Carolina home. He called it one of the great honors of his life. And before I left, uh, Reverend Graham started praying for me as he had prayed for so many presidents before me. And when he finished praying, I felt the urge to pray for him. I didn't really know what to say. Uh, What do you pray for when it comes to the man who's prayed for so many? Obama is the 12th American president to meet with a famous faith leader who's now 97 years old. For more than 60 years, Graham has been the spiritual confidant of presidents, both Republican and Democratic. But Graham's relationship with the presidency got off to a rocky start. In 1950, Billy Graham was a popular evangelical minister with a national following. That's when the ambitious 31-year-old used his connections to snag a meeting with President Harry S. Truman. He asked Truman about his spiritual life. This is Graham biographer Grant Wacker. Truman said something to the effect that he tried to live by the golden rule. And then Graham said, well, that's not good enough. You need to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. And we don't know what Truman said to that, but... uh, We can imagine what he thought. Yeah, well, yeah, that's not hard to imagine. (laughs) But um, uh, at some point in the conversation, Graham asked Truman if he, that is, Graham, could pray with Truman. And Truman said, uh, well, I don't suppose it could do any harm. (laughs) So you get a sense of the drift of the conversation here. It was an awkward meeting. And to make things worse... Graham made the egregious mistake of telling the press everything that was said. And he had no idea that you don't blab to reporters what the president says in the Oval Office. And Truman never forgave him. Graham had better luck with Truman's successor, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Their relationship began when Graham encouraged the general to run for the White House in 1952. He said to Eisenhower, you are the only man who could possibly save America from a moral ruin. You are the man for the hour. And I mean, it was 
wildly exaggerated statements. And, and many years later in his autobiography, uh, Graham said, no one ever accused me of understatement in those years. Graham's fears of moral ruin were in part a product of the Cold War. Graham was a strident anti-communist. Graham saw communism as a religion, literally a demonic religion. For some time, I've been stating to this radio audience that communism is far more than just an economic and political interpretation of life. This is Billy Graham in a 1951 radio address. Communism is a fanatical religion of atheism. This atheistic philosophy is paralleling and counterfeiting Christianity. I do not Millions of Americans agreed with Graham's anti-communism, including Eisenhower, who constructed an image of America as a spiritual counterweight to the godless Soviet Union. Eisenhower, who wasn't publicly religious before his presidency, asked Graham for Bible verses that he could drop into campaign speeches. And after Eisenhower came to Washington, Graham persuaded him to join a Presbyterian church in the Capitol. Wacker says that during the presidential years, Eisenhower's faith became ever more public and political. Eisenhower marked a transition. And quite interestingly, communism had a great deal to do with both Graham's success and Eisenhower's. It all seems counterintuitive. How does the purportedly godless, atheistic menace of communism enable presidents to use religion for their purposes? Graham helped create the public space that presidents embraced. But ever thereafter, we all know what every president's religious identity is. This is public knowledge. In the mid-1950s, Eisenhower also persuaded Congress to add under God to the Pledge of Allegiance and in God we trust to the currency. After Eisenhower, Graham remained an honored guest at the White House. He was friendly with Democratic President John F. Kennedy and was quite close to Lyndon Johnson. Wacker says that these relationships, like Graham's connections with other presidents, were mutually beneficial. Graham received publicity and presidents received legitimation. That is, Americans were looking for people who are broadly, generally religious, and therefore they could trust them because they had higher values. And this is what Graham brought to the presidents. But Graham's relationship with the next president didn't turn out so well. Wacker says that Graham and Richard Nixon had been friends since the early 1950s. They were golfing buddies. They, they played golf more than 100 times. Who won? <laughs> Graham was actually a pretty good golf player. And uh, so there are a lot of jokes about how Graham had the benefit of uh, divine assistance. Yeah, and, we have to assume that God was on his side for those, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, those yeah, close right, ones. Yeah. <laughs> Graham remained a close friend after Nixon was elected president in 1968. He saw Nixon as a great man. At one point, Graham even compared him to Winston Churchill. The preacher stuck by his friend, even when the Watergate scandal engulfed the White House in the early 1970s. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. He kept saying that Nixon was a man of too high a moral character to do these things. Then 
Graham read the Watergate transcripts. And this is very interesting because he said that this was the first time he understood what was really going on. He said, I nearly vomited. Wacker says that Graham's reputation took a hit. His close relationship to Nixon came back to haunt him 30 years later when White House tapes revealed that Graham made anti-Semitic comments in conversation with the president. But even back in the 1970s, the Watergate scandal forced Graham to reevaluate his presidential friendships. I think that's a pivotal moment in Graham's public political career. The relationship becomes more pastoral, more private, He tried to transcend what he saw as the um, ebb and flow and give and take of daily political fights. Graham took this approach, for the most part, with presidents for the next 40 years. Wacker says the new Graham encouraged other pastors to do the same. Now, he said it's fine to get into politics if it's understood as a moral crusade, and he used civil rights as the moral side of politics. He said, that you have to do. But partisanship, you need to stay out of that as as a public figure. But in the 1980s, many evangelical leaders didn't follow his advice. Preachers, such as the Reverend Jerry Falwell, became political activists. They raised money for conservative causes. In fact, Graham even criticized Falwell for sermonizing on partisan political issues. Wacker says there will likely never be another presidential pastor like Billy Graham, though there are plenty of evangelical preachers out there today who are politically active, none of them has the stature of Billy Graham. Why? In part because Graham knew how to listen, and he understood that the presidency of the United States was a tough gig. There's some very touching letters between Lyndon Johnson and uh, Graham in which Johnson talks about how Graham's friendship sustained him, as Johnson put it, during the dark loneliness of the presidency. And he said, I relied on you as a friend and you never failed me. Grant Wacker is a historian at Duke Divinity School. He's the author of America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. You know, Brian, listening to that interview with Grant Wacker brings back pretty personal memories of mine. I was raised as a Southern Baptist in Tennessee, and one of the times that my family would come together, which was not all that often, uh, was in front of the television whenever Billy Graham would have his crusade on TV, and it would preempt whatever was on TV to watch this. And we would all five watch hundreds of people stream down at Graham's call at the end of his powerful sermon for people to... Uh, renew their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I remember sitting in that living room and feeling part of something really big and feeling that there was nothing else that was really that same sense of solidarity except when we gather around that same television and watch the moon shots, uh, you know, yeah. watch the space uh-huh. shots, you know, and the sense that, okay, we are a united people. These are the same 60s where a lot of other things were kind of falling apart. But in those moments, it felt like there was some kind of cohesion to American culture and, and our place in the world. 
Well, Ed, you'll be shocked to hear that as a Jewish family uh, growing up in South Florida, we didn't sit around and watch Billy Graham. But, (laughs) Ed, my memories of the exact same period, even though you are a few months older than I am, was of coming together as a family at the University of Miami football games. And my dad (laughs) would focus intently on one and only one thing, which was... Would the minister who delivered the invocation before the national anthem, would he invoke Jesus Christ or not? And if he invoked Jesus Christ, my dad was out of there. He he just <laughs> literally left for about five minutes, yeah. muttering things I can't repeat on the radio. But what's really interesting is that presidents used Billy Graham to kind of triangulate between Protestant evangelical true believers on the one hand and, let's say, Jewish families like mine that were very, very eager to assimilate into what became known as a civil religion, a religion that was non-denominational, that was open to Christians uh, and Jews, and in theory even Muslims, although they were not talked about all that much in that period. And what that really underscores is the very delicate line that presidents had to walk. They needed their spiritual advisors, and Billy Graham was first among all of them. But they also had to demonstrate that they could be a president for all denominations and religions, that they could bring us all together under God, one nation under God, against this common godless enemy, the Soviet Union. Peter, I'm curious to know what Thomas Jefferson, who in many ways was all about creating a civil religion, what Thomas Jefferson would think of where we are today. Well, Brian, Jefferson very much would have endorsed the notion of a big tent religiosity, and even Billy Graham's revivals that Ed remembers nostalgically, uh, they were inviting. They were not divisive. Uh, You just come forward and be part of this great group, and Brian, you're welcome too, okay? And even decadent Unitarians such as myself. But That's changed now, and I think that's a remarkable thing because civil religion, that notion that we had a God, nature's God, whatever you want to call it, the kind of God that Abraham Lincoln invoked, the God of manifest destiny, the God on our coinage, uh, the God that we pledge allegiance to, well, we're not there anymore. And uh, I think some of the anger and rage you feel uh, from advocates of Christian America is a sense that that moment is past. And uh, now, instead of bringing people together, religious faith is, as it has historically been in Western civilization, a great fracture in the body politic. Yes. You know, pulling the camera back like this reminds us that the moment of Billy Graham was actually the great anomaly in American history. Right. I don't think there was a time, any other time in the 19th century, people imagined that America was more unified, more religious, more Christian. It really wasn't in the way that we saw in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Mm -hmm. May God bless 
Our new president. That's going to do it for today. But you can join us online and let us know what you thought about today's show. And while you're there, ask us questions about our upcoming episodes. We've got a show about the history of manufacturing, a Halloween special about the history of horror, and be sure to send us your favorite presidential debate moments for a history of debating. You'll find it all at BackstoryRadio.org or send email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. He sure got a tough job And it is on his hand This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Melissa Gismondi is our researcher. We have help from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee, Liz McCauley, and Peyton Wall. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. But if we all would help well, well, I swear we cannot lose. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.